in May of this year, the London Times ran this story. Eight years ago, a woman by the name of of Hannah Ban decided she was tired of being what she considered short. The five-foot-one Australian woman had been made fun of most of her life, and she was convinced that her height was the sole reason she wasn't being taken seriously in the professional world. But what do you do about something as seemingly set in stone as your height? Well, she found a solution in Russia, albeit a painful one. Russian doctors agreed to break both of her legs in four places and stretch them slowly for one millimeter every day for nine months. Yeah. After all the breaking and the stretching, she then wore plaster casts for three additional months to make the changes permanent. The whole process cost her $40,000. In the end, she gained three inches. But she insists that more importantly, she gained respect. Quickly pointing out that she is now a city councilwoman in Australia. When asked by a Times reporter if she would pursue further cosmetic enhancements, she said... I haven't made a decision on whether I will in the future or not. I know I'll get wrinkles and put on weight and I'll even shrink as I get older. So we'll see what happens. But, she said, I'm not fixated on self-image. Oh, now I would agree with that, wouldn't you? She's not fixated on self-image at all. You know, in our Colossians text this morning... We, uh, we turn, at least just for a few verses, what seems to be in a, in a bit of a different direction. The apostle, the apostle moves down a different track. You know where we've been. You know the emphasis from the start of this book has been on the mystery and the amazing greatness of God. His incredible love, the amazing grace that he has he has shown to his people through, through their rescue, God's rescue attempt, rescuing his people through his son. And then, of course, last Sunday, we were reminded in some just amazing words of the greatness, the majesty, the authority of his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And remember, according to Paul, not just any Jesus will do, only this Jesus, this one who is, who is greater than we can even begin to imagine, he is, according to Paul, the wisdom and the power of God and, by the way, he is the only source of our salvation. And so, after this just incredibly, almost expansive and explosive, if you will, the words just kind of leap off the page, after... After all of this, Paul gets a bit personal. He turns the attention to himself for a few verses. If you've been reading through the book, you've, you've seen this. And as far as the language goes, it's, it's, uh, it's rather an abrupt change. It seems very sudden and, and, and somewhat uncharacteristic. Focus upon 
itself by the apostle. In the six verses that we'll read, he uses the personal pronouns I and me six times. And with the exception of chapter four, where he gives his his final uh, sort of greetings and, and, and farewell in this letter, except for that chapter, it's it is more in these six verses than he uses in the rest of the letter. So, so what's going on here? Let's stand and, and read our text together, shall we? <clears throat> together. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So what do you think? Interesting language. Paul talks about what he has suffered for them, filling up in his flesh what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What's that all about? And and being a servant of the church by commission from God, does it strike you as as a bit more self-focused, self-absorbed, Certainly than than the language that we have become accustomed to so far in the book. What do you think is going on? Turn Turn to a neighbor and see if they have an idea. What do you think? Why does Paul at this point just go in in this more personal direction for approximately six verses? What do you think? Ask someone nearby. All right, it's getting quiet. No, we're not saying how we <laughs> What do you think? What'd your neighbor think? Any <laughs> neighbor was asleep. Sorry, Matt. Oh, she's talking about Daniel. Maybe <laughs> I 
Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. Okay. There'll be no maturity in Christ unless we receive that anointing that Jesus had. Hallelujah. Okay. Okay. Someone else. Donna. That will be a theme that we see later on in the book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Reasonable. What else? Any other thoughts? Ah. There is a sense of excitement there, isn't there? Ah. Okay. Okay. Good. Good, Gene. Anything else? All right, you want to know what the best answer is? The official answer is, we don't know. <laughs> but, but we do strive to make some, some educated guesses. And, and gosh, so much good. <clears throat> There's, I think probably all of those themes are are going on in, in Paul's heart and mind as, as he pens this letter. Another twist as well, just add this one to the possibilities, is remember, it's not very likely that Paul went to Colossae. We, we have no biblical record that he was ever in Colossae. Um, so that being true, remember as well that we've said from the get-go that this is this is, at best, a small congregation, and they have obviously embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not sure how the gospel has gotten there. Probably has something to do with Epaphras, that name mentioned in, in the first chapter, the beginning of the first chapter. Certainly an acquaintance and a partner in ministry of Paul, the way that he talks about him, but that's all we really know about Epaphras. So... Keep that fact in mind, and then we've talked about what, what commentators call the Colossian heresy. Remember, that's the, the, the issues, the false teachings that, that are beginning to permeate this little fellowship of believers, and they're beginning to be challenged on some of the more significant points of the gospel, especially has, as it has to do with Jesus. All of that being the case, imagine with me some of the conversations that, that possibly go on in this small gathering of Christians. Those who are followers of Christ, those who are perhaps more subscribers to, to this growing uh, heresy with, within this growing body of false teaching within the congregation there, and conversations that... Would, would go something like this. So, so tell me again, tell me again, why, why do you believe what you do about Jesus? What's, what's so important about Jesus? Where, 
where did you hear this teaching about Jesus, that, that He's the incarnation of God and that He's the only salvation uh, for all of humankind? Oh, oh, that's right. You, you've heard about it from this person named Paul. Who's Paul? And why is he so important? And why would you believe what he has to say? And, and, and tell me, why is it that you've never met him? And you're believing this stuff from a person that you've never met? And so the heat is, is beginning to, to turn up at Colossae. And as we said before as well, that it's almost always true that the letters that we have recorded in the New Testament are written in response to perhaps a letter that has been sent to Paul that we don't have any evidence of, or some kind of question has gone to Paul and he's gotten word of a problem or an issue that's going on in a congregation, and so the apostle pens his letter in response to the concerns and the issues that are growing. And I think it's quite likely that one of the issues that is growing at Colossae is an issue that, uh, that we certainly see in other places. Uh, we see it in Philippians. We see it in Corinthians. Uh, we see a hint of it in Galatians, where Paul is having to make a statement about who he is. He's making a statement about who he is. Uh, what is the motivation behind what he has taught or what he has written to them? Where his, his heart is in all of this. And in these six short verses, I, I think it's, it's reasonable to include in some of those other ideas that we have that Paul is offering to the believers in Colossae a gentle, and it really is fairly gentle compared to some of the other defenses that we see him give in other letters, fairly gentle defense of himself and, and his motive in, in doing what he is doing as a teacher of the gospel. He wants them to know that, that he's not doing it for fame or fortune or or physical well-being, uh, that is for sure. And I think, I think that at that point that there's a, there's a connection for us in our lives, there's something here for us, even though it's Paul's experience, some, some themes that are common uh, for all followers of Christ. Uh, there are lots of, of loaded statements here in this text. I want us to, to look just for a few minutes, two of the statements that Paul makes that I think we need to connect with where we live our lives. And I think that of all of the statements, that they are two truths that, that really prepare us well for, for coming to the table of the Lord Jesus this morning and, and celebrating uh, that feast of the people of God. First of all, I want you to notice Paul's perspective on suffering. He says that he rejoices 
in what was suffered for the believers at Colossae and that he is willing to, as we read, fill up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. Now, we said that Paul was likely never in Colossae. And so his reference to suffering for them is probably a reference to his imprisonment in Rome. He was, why was he imprisoned in Rome? He was imprisoned for believing and, and preaching this strange gospel. This stuff about Jesus that we have seen him explode in descriptions before. And even though he's never met these believers in Colossae, his suffering, he sees his suffering as for their sake because they are recipients of the gospel for which he is in prison. And so he understands the believers in Colossae as being part of the church for which God has called him to have a ministry. Make sense at all? You remember the story in Acts chapter 9. Paul is, is knocked down by the glorious light of Christ and he's blinded. You remember he goes on into the city of Damascus. And there's a disciple in Damascus by the name of Ananias. And God says to Ananias, I want you to go down to this particular house in town and I want you to meet with a man there by the name of Saul. And Ananias goes, are you sure that's what you want me to do here, Lord? You know, I've heard reports about this man and what he does to the followers of Jesus. And I'm not so sure that that's really a great idea. He didn't really say that, but that's what's expressed in his voice. <laughs> and God said to him, go. This man is my chosen instrument to take the glory of my name to the Gentiles and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I can't help but think that Ananias at that point thought, oh, this is going to be cool. I get to go and tell him that God's got it in for him. I love it. And suddenly he's the happy messenger, you know, just floating down the street to find this Saul of, of Tarsus. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Aren't you glad that God hasn't said that about you? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I seem to remember Paul said something to, to Timothy. Something to Timothy in, in one of his, 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 uh, his letters. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you asked about this. You did ask about this. Doug, Doug, can you read that for us? Second Timothy. You know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering, what kinds of things happened to me, the persecutions that I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to Uh-oh. Everyone 
everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. In the language that Paul is using here, to live a godly life means to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, let me clarify. He's not talking about a good churchgoer. He's not talking about someone who has a quiet time every day. He is not talking about someone who is a prayer warrior. He is not even talking about someone who tithes on a regular basis. All of those things, good things, important things, ways that we, we show ourselves to be committed followers of Christ. What Paul is referring to here is a life that is different, a life that is seen as different, a life whose value system is different, And it's observed by those who hold a different view of life than you do. Paul is referring to a life lived for Christ among those who are not living for Christ. Which, by the way, is the life that we are called to live. So my question for us this morning is, how are we doing in that? You ever ever find yourself wondering, how am I doing in the life that I am living for Christ? I desire to live this godly life. I, I, I identify myself as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. How am I doing in that? Let me tell you. I think that there is a way to know how we're doing. Look for persecution in your life. Look for persecution in your life. Now, I'm not saying that we go looking for persecution. I'm saying look For the persecution that is there. You're not going looking for persecution. Oh, that I could be persecuted this week for Jesus. But I wonder, is the life that you're living, is the life that I'm living, is it causing any kind of a reaction from those in my life who share a different worldview? who share a different value system, who don't see life the way that I do. Persecution takes all different forms. In this country, you don't go to jail for being a Christian yet. But you can certainly get into trouble for living out Christ-like values in the workplace. Did you know that Jesus doesn't belong in the workplace? You can certainly get in trouble for living out Christ-like values in the public school system. Did you know that Jesus doesn't belong in the public school system? The Lord of the universe, that Paul has said, by Him all things were created, created by Him and for Him. Here's a newsflash for you. This just in off the presses. Christ 
belongs everywhere. Everywhere. Hear that clearly. There is no realm in humanity where Jesus Christ does not belong. Now, I am not for a moment suggesting that we go out and be ridiculous in calling attention. (laughs) That's relief, isn't it? Calling attention to ourselves, which I'm afraid is so often the case. But is it possible that for those who are committed followers of Christ to understand the truth of what Christ has done for us, as Paul laid it out in chapter 1 early on, is it possible that we are so taken with the fact that He rescued us from that stinking kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the Son that He loves, that we just can't help but talk about the One who has rescued us? You're not seeming very responsive on this. That's where I'm at too. I struggle with this. And it comes down to, not that I don't think that it's right. I know you believe that Jesus belongs everywhere in the society in which we live. It's His world. He's the Lord of the universe. He loves all people. People need to know about the Savior. Who's going to argue with that? I'm just not sure how confident I am in his ability to take care of me in those times of potential persecution. If the shoe doesn't fit, don't put it on. But this is where I live my life. Persecution takes all different forms. Let's don't go looking for trouble. But I do think that it's worth us in some quiet moments looking at our lives and asking this question, is there anywhere in my life that I'm suffering persecution for being a follower of Christ? Is there anybody in my life who is treating me unjustly or ticked off at me? And I know it's because of just my witness and who I am in Jesus. I cannot say when it will happen or how often it will happen or or what form it's going to take. But, But Paul said, everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. And the implication to Timothy in those verses is, those who are striving to live a godly life in an ungodly world. And that is the world that we live in. An ungodly world. It's a world that doesn't recognize who our God is. Doesn't exalt Him for who He is. I have a dear friend who's recently been accused of some terrible actions. Totally untrue. Totally unfounded. Guess what? The source is an ungodly person. Out of the blue. Totally takes the wind out of his life. But his response as we've been in touch has been one of joy and confidence in Christ. And he said to me, he said, 
I know where this is coming from. I know where this is coming from. Paul welcomed persecution and he rejoiced in persecution as strange as that is to our ears. He rejoiced in persecution because it was evidence that he was faithfully living out the mandate to which God had called him. How about us? Second statement that I think has application for us in this text. Paul goes on to speak about being a servant of the church, commissioned by God to present to the believers in Colossae the word of God in its fullness. He says, it is a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages, but has now been disclosed to the saints. What is the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That God has chosen to make Gentiles, non-Jews, a part of his family. That's pretty much all of us here. The exception of a few. In his, in his amazement at what God is now doing. And he has called... He's called to be an ambassador of the gospel to the Gentiles. He is just overwhelmed at this mystery of Christ in a person. Christ, the hope of glory. How does God do that? Well, we've seen it. He snatches us from the kingdom of darkness and he plants us in the kingdom of the Son that he loves. And then... In his letter, if you've read the book of Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that God places his spirit in those who are his children, those whom he has rescued. God places his spirit in them. That is the spirit of Jesus Christ as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to come. Guaranteed. Did you know that the FDIC only insures your money up to hundred grand? That's peanuts compared to the fact that your future glory, your placement as a child of God for eternity has been guaranteed by the presence of the Spirit of Christ in you. Somebody say amen. Is that amazing? I can tell. Excellent point. The glorious riches of this mystery, Paul says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, I I hear the word glory and I often think of of so many of those rich spirituals that that came out of that period of slavery in the South. The the appreciation and and the hope that the slaves had for glory, the life to come, it was shaped by the difficulty of life that they lived in the present. And they were, they were looking forward to something better. The history of the early church bears out the same truth, friends. Christians faced suffering and persecution with a boldness and a confidence that you'd almost look at them and say, man, life to them just doesn't matter. It's not that it didn't matter. It's just that it was small change compared to what was coming down the pike in Christ Jesus. That same thing is going around the world today, all over the world. We have brothers and sisters in Christ 
who are dying for their faith in Jesus. They are rejoicing in this truth. Christ lives in them. And He is their hope of glory. They're doing what I call focusing on the big picture. Look around the room. Faces of those that you see, many of them, containing the hope of glory. Christ in their lives. It's tough to do alone. It's tough to sometimes follow when you feel alone. It's tough to face hard stuff alone. You're not. God has put you into this gathering called His body. Where each one of us shares in this miracle of Christ in us, the hope of glory. I love that. As we prepare to come to the communion table this morning, let me read another somewhat self-focused text, if you will, from Paul. comes in Philippians chapter 3. And yet, it is self-focused language for a very specific purpose. He starts out chapter 3 of Philippians with these very kind words. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. I think maybe he's perturbed here. He's speaking to those who likely part of a group called Judaizers who were insisting that, yeah, Jesus is good and you need Jesus, but you should still be circumcised in order to really be counted as part of God's family. Paul says, if anyone thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have even more. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Paul says, in, in my world's scheme of what is important, I was the top dog. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. My friends, do you know this morning with certainty that Christ is in you? Do you have the hope? Of glory, the hope of living forever in a love relationship with the God who created you, that is the hope of glory. Christ in you. If your answer to that question is no, please don't leave today 
without knowing how your answer can be yes. There is a way that you can know for sure that Christ lives in you. It is a pretty simple matter of confessing your need of a Savior. If you don't know Jesus as Lord, you're living in the kingdom of darkness that Paul talks about. First part of this chapter of Colossians 1. Living in the kingdom of darkness. Well-intentioned, well-meaning, potentially a very moral and good person. Living in the kingdom of darkness. Lost and without a Savior. It's a matter of confessing your need, of understanding that you need a Savior to rescue you from the dominion of darkness, to bring you into His kingdom. It is a wonderful place to live. Don't leave without knowing how you can live in God's kingdom. And if your answer is yes to that question, you do have the hope of glory. You do have Christ living in you. You do know what it means to have the certainty of a love relationship with the God who created you forever. Well then, welcome to the celebration. Welcome to this table that is set for you. Welcome to this table that that reminds us of the cost of grace. The price that was paid so that lost people could be found. And not just found, but given status around the table of the God of the universe. This is, as we often say, the joyful feast of the people of God. Hear these words of invitation as we gather at the table. It is now, brothers and sisters, our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All that humbly put their trust in Christ and desire His help, that they may lead a godly life. All that are truly penitent for their sins and would be delivered from them. All that walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life following the commandment of God and walking in His holy ways, they are invited to come to this table and to celebrate. This is indeed the joyful feast of the people of God. Scripture tells us that many will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they're going to sit at the table. What a table that must be. This is the Lord's table. Our Savior invites those who trust Him to share the feast which He has prepared. So come. Come to this sacred table this morning. Brothers and sisters in Christ, not because you have to, but because you may, because it's a privilege. Come to testify not that you are righteous, because you're not. Come because you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ who is righteous and you desire to be His follower. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of His mercy and His help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek His presence.
pray for His Spirit. Come, because God, in His amazing grace, (laughs) has adopted sinful people to be His children. Praise be to His name. The Scripture tells us that Jesus took the bread and He broke it. He was at the table with His disciples and He said, this is my body given for you. Do this often to remember me. Do this often. Don't forget Jesus is saying, don't forget what I've done. Don't forget what I've done. And then after Henry took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that is in my blood. This covenant is one of loving forgiveness because of the sacrifice that has been made by the beloved Son. Brothers and sisters, I know I often say to you, this doesn't look like much of a meal, but it's the most important one that we have on a monthly basis. So come. Come and celebrate the joyful feast of the people of God. As you are ready, if you've never taken communion with us at Applewood before, it's very easy. I've asked Vicki if she'll come and serve with me this morning, and she'll stand on one end, and I'll stand on another. Come and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. Celebrate God's grace for you in Christ Jesus. Come as you're ready.